The information presented is in no way to be considered as a standard of care, and the content of this podcast is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnoses, or treatment. The information is provided with no guarantee. All content is for informational purposes only and does not constitute the providing of medical, legal, or regulatory advice. Welcome back to our pediatric asthma episode. This is part two. In part one, we discuss pharmacology of pediatric asthma patients. In part two, we'll be discussing invasive and non-invasive airway management. Hope you enjoy. So let's talk about airways. Let's talk about advances. So we talk a lot about pharmacotherapy. Um, this is a respiratory problem. It's an airway issue. Typically, we all start out with NEBS. I mean, I, I think everybody's kind of on the same page with that. Um, no, I like to start, go straight to intubation. Yeah. <laughs> You know, I, I I will never forget. I had a physician once look at me and go, "If you ever intubate an asthmatic, I I I will shun you." And I was like, "I don't know what that means, but we're gonna go with it." Uh, just yeah, I've intubated several afterwards. Um, but try to avoid it. So there's a lot of tools we have in our toolbox now, especially in the last 15 years, especially since honestly since high flow came about, um, commercial high flow. There's a lot of tools we can use that are non-invasive to our advantage. Um, high flow, BiPAP, CPAP. Uh, CPAP's on every ambulance in the state here in Mississippi. Great tool. Um, how do y'all use non-invasive ventilation? So, I'm not a fan of high flow. Um, <laughs> in, in, for asthma, for yeah. specifically for asthma. Uh, I'll, let me rephrase that. The literature is not really showing good improvement in clinical outcomes with high flow modality of giving albuterol continuously there was some studies that came out from rt world uh gerald moody put out some that looked at specific medication administration in models and found three to four fold more delivery of albuterol using high flow as opposed to standard modality with jet um, nebulization but in clinical outcome trials, most every study has not found it to be superior to simple continuous albuterol. Um, high flow doesn't provide nearly as much PEEP as some people think it does. It provides um, some washout, right, of the dead space. That's not really the problem in asthma. It does potentially improve rate a little bit. That's not the problem in asthma. Uh, so it, it's not to me something I go to super often. I've done it a couple of times in patients that I'm really struggling to pull the trigger on the BiPAP or they're too small for BiPAP. That's one of the biggest issues for us is will there be a mask somewhere in the hospital yeah. that will fit that patient? Um, and so that's kind of difficult, but I am an absolute fan. Uh, BiPAP to me, continuous albuterol administered through a BiPAP mask has been probably one of the biggest game changers in severe asthma management um, in the last 20 years. And it makes just piles and piles of difference. I, I see people that I, I have come in on a shift before and I have inherited a patient who has been on continuous in the ER for six hours and it's just mind blowing. And you're like, good God. And I put them on high or I put them on BiPAP with the continuous and within an hour they look tons and tons and tons it's a better. different patient it is wild it's amazing what happens when you open up everything That's and you can actually get right. the medicine <laughs> to the spot it, it, it exactly. stays there it, it is to, it has been the absolute biggest game changer um I, I don't 
know that I could speak highly of it enough in the literature, in clinical practice, whether you're in, you know, a, you know, a critical access hospital or a major academic center, BiPAP should be a go-to. You know, I think CPAP similarly, although not to as high of a degree, uh, provides it, you know, granted, do you have space on your rig for the equipment to do BiPAP or CPAP? Maybe not. Um, but if it's something that you have available, that is going to be an absolute game changer. And it, if that's what the patient needs, maybe we need to have a conversation about whether or not it's appropriate to use a simple ground ambulance that may not have that capability. If somebody's that far down the pathway that they need BiPAP, maybe that's when we do need to kind of take things slow for a second, call for a helicopter that can come and pick that patient up and throw them on a BiPAP machine. I think one of the coolest things Mississippi's done in the last, uh, 10 years is put CPAP on every truck or mandate it's on every truck. The, the biggest caveat and you said it was, do you have something that'll fit, especially with kids? Um, it's something our team runs into all the time. We've got, we've even got special masks, but they don't always fit. Um, and so for me, you know, BiPAP's my go-to. I don't, I'm, I'm kind of like you. I've done, I've done high flow a couple of times. I've tried it. It works really well in the kids. They're the tweenies. The ones that are like one or two, maybe uh, not one or two, but like one or two sizes too small for the mass that you've got. And they, they don't quite fit it just right. I can't get a good seal. I'm, not, my, my vent, I'm using all the oxygen supply I got or the vent sitting there at the turbine. You can hear it whining. Hey, let's try them on high flow for a minute. You can still nebulize through high flow. It works fine yeah. as far as mechanically. Um, but give them also patient comfort a lot of patients won't tolerate that mask on them yeah. and so that's kind of my that's where i'll put the high flow over that the, the bipap or or the cpap i'm like you I, I agree bipap cpap and then maybe high flow nasal cannula but if you've got somebody in there that's constantly pulling at the mask and, and why do you even have it on their face it's, it's useless yeah. at that point let's try the high flow because some's better than nothing yeah but yeah by all means if you can go with the bpap Let's go with the BPAP because you have your alternating levels of pressure. And a lot more comfort. Of, exactly. A lot more comfort. Because a lot of times where BPAP comes in or BiPAP or CPAP comes into play is it, it relaxes the patient down a little bit. It makes that patient, it feels those pressure changes and the patient's like, oh man, I'm moving air now. So we, we lose a little bit of that anxiety driven that's making it a little bit more difficult to treat this patient. Um, so, and it also decreases those respiratory muscles. They're, they're filling that pressure inside the lungs and they're overriding that. I can't move. I can't move air. I can't move air. So, I think the, the big thing about BiPAP in particular, whenever you're nebulizing albuterol or atropine or whatever through it, is you don't get that washout. Yeah. You're, you're getting, that medicine is going there. So you're getting a more potent amount of medicine straight to the receptors. So I think that uh, for me, I'm I'm quick on BiPAP, very quick on BiPAP. And on the street side too, I think a lot of people they're nervous about it. They're they're nervous about pulling this trigger one because, like you said, up until about ten years ago, CPAP was a foreign concept for us on the grounds. And but now they're in their mind, they're thinking CPAP, constant positive airway pressure, you know, at the end. And then they're thinking asthma, getting air out. Why why would I give them pressure to get air out? So they're kind of but you're not really understanding what's taking place at that point. And it goes back to what Doc was talking about and what, what Branch was just talking about. It's sometimes you have to give a little to gain a lot. Yep. So. And even on BiPAP, something, 
some people, a lot of people get wrapped around with numbers and respiratory is a, is a numbers game when you start talking about inspiratory pressures and expiratory <clears throat> pressures and everything else. A lot of these asthmatic kids especially don't have to have, they're not like ARDS patients. They're not right. getting peak inspiratory pressures of 45 and 50 or some, you know, ridiculous number. They're, they're usually fine. You just give them a little bit of pressure. It may be, you know, inspiratory pressure of five above PEEP and your PEEP is three. Yep. And that's all they need, just enough flow in and out to make it comfortable and get it, get the medicine where it needs I to be. I call that PDP, patient-driven pressure. I yeah. mean, what does the patient, what are they tolerating and what are they benefiting from? That's where I drive the pressure at. Um, what do y'all, speaking of numbers, because everybody likes numbers, what do y'all typically start BiPAPs at on kids? Say, say we're dealing with a, a seven, eight-year-old. I normally start low. Yeah. Um, just because, for one, it's it's a huge shock to the kid, you know, whenever they're trying to breathe and they're having to breathe against pressures, and then all of a sudden they have these immense amount of pressures being blown in. So I always start low, and then I'll work my way up, you know, and I'll even go, you know, peep of three, peep of four, and uh, inspiratory pressure of six, seven, eight, but I start low and then work my way up, depending on what the patient can handle. Yeah, I, I'll say I... I I start above physiologic, um, at or above physiologic. So for the most part, I'm usually doing 12 over 6. Um, occasionally, if they're little, I'll start at 10 over 5. Um, you know, so you got that inspiratory of 10 and your peep of 5 or 12 and 6. That's usually my starting point because below that, your sub-physiologic, it may not be – you're not really providing as much positive pressure at that point. Um now, if you've got an anxious kid and you want to start that's, low to kind of gradually introduce it, I think that that's reasonable. That's and that's um, what I normally do, yeah. just for the anxiety reason. But I, I do think um, just the the experience that I have had with kids doing it is, I don't think it matters what setting you set them on; they're going to freak out as soon as oh, that yeah. mask seals yeah. on their oh, face. Yeah. So, might as well go ahead and hit them with not a ton of pressure, um, but a little bit more than what they're already doing, so that they feel the improvement more quickly because a lot of times with school age and up kids if you can like get them to just realize that they're starting to actually feel a difference they calm down you know i've had more than a few patients that were already freaking out with the face mask in general that we've switched over to bipap and yeah for about three minutes we were dealing with an octopus uh but then all of a sudden you kind of get them to calm down for a second and just think and they're like Oh my God, I can breathe. Like, and they settle right down. Um, so I, I tend to go just, you know, at or above physiologic. And I think one of some of the literature that, that I read too, you know, he talking about your peep and all that, really don't go above about eight. Yeah. Everything you read, not for eight, this. Yeah, not for yeah, this. Not, yeah, not for this. You're more and, likely to cause a pneumo yeah, than you are to fix so, a problem. Again, think about the pathology and what's taking place and your the treatment modality that you're using now think about what you're doing and why you're doing what you're doing and so yeah I, i'm with you i started out above what or right above what they should be at and then let them drive it from there yeah a lot of us let them drive it the the biggest thing is depending again where you're at and what ventilator or bipap machine you're using the the biggest thing I tell people, especially in new orientees when you have an orientation, is make sure you look at that exit volume. Yeah. 
if you've got any invasive or non-invasive, but you can look at that exit volume, the first thing you do is look at the exit volume. And it's for trending later. We're, we're not going to, it's a snapshot of moment in time. We've, I think we pretty much hammered it. Every episode we bring up trends, but you've got to look at the exit. So you know where you started and you know, Hey, to the, to Branch's point about, hey, I'm going to start at this and increase it. All right, did I help, hurt, whatever? How do I adjust to make it work? Do I adjust the flow rate? Does it, you know, the driving pressure they like? What, all those kinds of things. Tailor it to your patient. There's not one. The biggest thing that frustrates me the most when I walk in somewhere or I'm talking to somebody and have a conversation about vents is it's all about patient independence. The patient drives, no matter what you're doing, everybody's different. And so let them dictate, hey, what works for them. I do think, um, you know, one of the things that's really helpful about this, the way that you guys do this most of the time is, you know, one of the major pros of pre-hospital medicine is you have one patient. So you're able to reassess, 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 reassess constantly. And that's one of the things that this patient needs. So when we're talking about putting somebody on BiPAP and you're talking about starting with the people three and then gradually increasing, you know, that may take a minute of time, you know. So one of the hardships for me is that I don't have one patient. And so do do I have a stable enough unit that I can sit there with the patient and kind of do those things and trend things in real time or not? And so that's part of the reason why I kind of jump up there. But regardless of how busy your unit is, whether you're in an ICU or in an ER and an urgent care trying to freaking manage this as best you can like um that reassessment still has to happen you know when i throw somebody on bipap i usually set them up on bipap get that moving walk out find out how the rest of the department is doing maybe go see a patient and then try to within about 20 minutes 15 minutes go back and look because sometimes the patient is not driving well and you need to escalate or sometimes they're still not calm and you may need to consider alternative measures, whether that be, you know, a little bit of anxiolysis or maybe even a little ketamine to kind of help situation out. Not something I necessarily recommend that, you know, you're doing in the pre-hospital setting where you, you know, sometimes you sedate a patient who's in respiratory, almost respiratory failure, and then you have a patient in respiratory failure. But um, in the emergency department, you know, using ketamine to take the edge off on these BiPAP patients can be marvelous you know it may bronchodilate by itself with ketamine you know there is some literature that supports that Um, but i like to do that as opposed to fighting too hard and then ending up having to make the major major sphincter tightening decision about whether we need a tube so what's uh something's coming down the pipe there's some literature with it it's not all the way there yet um it's definitely kind of more is not done as commonly as i know of in pre-hospital um, or transport. What's your thoughts on Dex? Presidex? I love Presidex. So it's one of my favorite sedatives. Uh, I think we need to use it more in the pediatric ER. Um, I'm one of the few that has used it with any degree of regularity, but I'm a massive fan. I do think um, asthmatics may be some of the best patients to use it on because obviously one of the effects is you get a little, you can see a little bit of bradycardia slowing in <clears> the heart rate got a heart rate of 195 maybe a little slowing is okay maybe that's fine maybe we could tolerate that we could just just bring it down Um, but presidex has very little if any impact on respiratory drive 
Um, and so it is less likely to cause a problem for your asthmatic patient. Um, it is a fantastic turn it on, turn it off, um, anxiolytic drug. Um, Presidex is starting to see expanded use in a lot of areas in anxiety control and emergency departments. Um, and so, yeah, I, I think I'm, I'm a big fan of that in, in a asthmatic patient who I'm on BiPAP with. In fact, we came very close to giving it just a few weeks ago. But the patient actually, like I said, calmed down once they realized they could breathe. <laughs> I think I think it has really definitely those places ER. I'm a little skittish myself in the transport world because it's yeah. such a stimulated environment that we live in. But from a from a in hospital, a rural hospital, or whatever, or even uh, you know, to Branch's point about trying to get them on there to realize, hey, this is okay. I think that may be a really good use for it. To you know, you got. Bother, take an extra 15 minutes, give them, let them try it out, see what it is. Get them. I think in the pre-hospital, it's just a conversation of like, again, do you have space for yet another drug? You already have, in a lot of places, you already have a couple of different benzos. More and more people are carrying ketamine. Uh, do you need another anxiolytic uh, sedative that really has no other major role other than as a sedative. You're not able to double it up. You're not using it for pain. You're not using it for seizures. You're not using it for anything else. So it is a one use drug. And does the, does the rig you're using have space for another one use drug? Uh, storage and refrigeration, yep. all, the, yep. all, all, those other. all of those, all of those technical barriers, um, physical barriers. Um, but yeah, I think you'll see probably more and more, um, that being embraced in emergency medicine. I wanted, to, I wanted to bring it up. I'd be remiss if I didn't say, hey, look, this is on the I ride. think it's, it's fun. It's I, I love Presidex. It's one of my favorites. So is that something y'all doing a good bit here? Is it? As far as using yeah. well, so I'm one of the only ones in the, our emergency room that uses it a fair bit. Um, I love to use it on kids who are anticholinergic overdoses. I love to use it um, for sedating some of these patients who I'm already leery about their respiratory status. Uh, I like using it as the sedative for a lot of my hypotensive patients because while it does potentially cause some bradycardia, it does not impact their blood pressure almost at all. Because I have seen an influx in it here lately yeah. in the transport, and but and I didn't know if maybe it was because uh, 90% of our flights are going to end up with that these patients are on Presidex. We're going to end up here at UMC. Yeah. So I didn't know if it was a UMC-driven thing on the receiving side or if these were maybe UMC docs coming out. Um. I, I don't know the answer. I know that the ICU loves it too. Um, Presidex is one of their favorite sedatives uh, to use um, because it's so easy to turn on and off. Has a lot less addictive potential. Um, but it, it, it's uh, I'm not I'm not sure if you know we're not. I will say that in the pediatric side we're not we have not yet gotten to the point where we're training a lot of people in Presidex. Um, and the adult ER here doesn't use it as much as other places. I think it's. I think it's some of those. One of those. Another one of those drugs that kind of came out of COVID. You're like, hey, we're running out of. Yeah. Running out of Versed. <laughs> running out of profile, yeah. Whatever it is. <laughs> hey, Everything's got gone. One over here. What do we have left? Let's use this. this one on the back of the fridge. Before we go to these intimidate infusions that everybody wants really bad. I'm. I'm kidding. Um, right. But I think I, I think that's a lot of where it came from. But so moving moving forward, we talked about using Dex as a preventative to the intubation. But if you've got to intubate the asthmatic. Okay, if I'm going to be shunned. So remember that you almost never do. First out, out the gate. Um, it should absolutely be a decision made at a life or death moment. 
This is not the patient that you intubate protectively. This is not the patient that you're intubating electively. This is not the patient you're intubating just to make sure you have a secure airway for transport. There are few patients that you can legitimately say their highest risk of death moment is after you put the tube in. Not while you're putting the tube in, but after. Um, That tube goes in. Within 20 minutes, that patient has a laryngospasm that is below the level of the tube. You can't fix it. And so it is a a incredibly high risk decision. Um, and, and I, you know, I, I, I always hesitate whenever I get phone calls uh, from other hospitals, docs in the middle of nowhere trying to practice this kind of critical care medicine, getting a med control call from an ambulance out there. Should we go ahead and do this? I'll, I'll never tell somebody out and out, don't do what you think is best in the moment. But I caution the bejesus out of these people uh, because I have seen patients arrest after you secured the tube and everything was fine. Um, it is a tremendously high-risk procedure already. Intubation already is already a high-risk procedure. But for the asthmatic Second highest risk of death for the asthmatic is that. I think of intubating an asthmatic as a flash pulmonary edema. Um, and not that they ha- that happens, but I think of it as when you have a, if you've ever had somebody flash on you yep. um, from cardiac collapse or neurogenic or whatever it may be, and it happens immediately after intubation and it's just instant, that's how quickly they can decompensate because they lost all that vascular tone. They lost all those things, keeping anything open when you push the sucks, back, rock, whatever it is. And they, so, I mean, using a DAI approach may be a better option using ketamine, fentanyl, Versed, whatever, whatever it is, instead of totally knocking somebody out. Um, but if you make the decision again, to your point, don't make it lightly and have all your ducks in a row. So whether it's push dose pressors or all the things to preemptively, um, I was talking to somebody about a year and a half ago and they were like, yep, if I ever went to asthmatic, doesn't matter what size they are, they get push dose epi, period. Yeah. I was like, what if they're, he's like, nope, just period. They just get it. Okay. Well, I don't think it's entirely a bad idea, yeah. <laughs> honestly. Well, I mean, you have the meds mixed with the increase in the intrathoracic pressures. I mean, that's just waiting for circulatory collapse. Like, that is is setting you up for failure in the very beginning. Yeah, I mean, absolutely need to take into account the circulatory piece to that. Because, yes, their intrathoracic pressure is already very likely above their central venous pressure. But there is such a high rate of post-intubation laryngospasm uh, that has nothing to do with the heart. Um, and there's not a medicine that you can give that's going to fix that problem. You can give them push docepi, probably won't do anything. You can give, the only thing you might be able to do, maybe, is if you give them more <laughs> and more doses of muscle relaxer, you might be able to overcome that extreme version of that muscle contracture. Um, but the literature is not real great on two or three doses of rock being able to overcome that in a fast enough time to save that patient from arresting. And now you're, you have a hypoxemic hypercapnic arresting patient who's already got a high intrathoracic pressure. who's already got circulatory problems. Recovery of that patient can be really difficult. I, I can say 
I have personally never intubated an asthmatic. Um, but I know that um, that is one of those things that I would have a very serious conversation with that family before I do it. Not a long one. Not a long one. But I would tell them very honestly, this is a life or death moment. He very likely could die if I don't do this. But there's a reasonable chance that he can die if I do. And so you have to kind of inform people because what's going to happen is you're going to, if you didn't do that and you throw that tube in and something bad happens, guess who they blame? The guy with the, the guy with the tube in his hand. So you got to be careful. Um, if this is something that you have reached that moment of decision, hopefully with weighty, um, fear and trepidation, uh, you need to stop and just take, five seconds and warn the family this this is a bad moment this is not this is not just the kid who stopped breathing because of their seizures we're going to put a tube in it's going to be fine no this is a, this is the uh, he's probably going to die if i don't do this yeah. but there's a reasonable chance that he will die if i do it even if i do do this the, the, we just extended his stay for sure um, and and i'm i'm against it you know i'm, I'm against intubating this asthma kid and Unlike unless like what you said, yeah. we're to the point we're at the we're at the crossroad. We're not approaching it. We're at the crossroad. Right. We we've got to make a move here. But I can't. You can't stress enough. If you have to take a left and intubate this kid, you know everything that you've you've taken or everything that you know about ventilating intubations and all that. That's going out the window at this point. Yeah. This is a whole different world ventilating this patient now every all these numbers that we're fixated on that are running through our head like rain man right now they're obsolete in ventilating this patient you're going to see massively higher pressures you're going to see you if you don't change your ide ratio you're going to blow bilateral pneumos again now you've got a major circulatory and ventilatory problem and your patient's going to rest rapidly you know you're going to have to think very carefully about all of these steps and it's better to have a process that you've already thought through for some of that but sometimes in real time you just have to do it i I will never forget my first time certifying for pals was an asthmatic intubated patient that blew pneumos and that was the code Um, and it was both a commentary on cardiac arrest as well as the specifics of talking about intubating asthmatic patients and the changes that you have to do, even just the pre-intubation part, right? You give them a sedative, you start bagging that patient. Are you regular bagging? Are you just you got to match bag? them? You, you got to you've got to change again. You've got to <clears throat> give them that prolonged expiratory phase. You've got to be very careful about the pressures that you're given when you're squeezing your back. So there's so many pieces to that that you have to take into account. And, and this is again, anything that you have to like piece together that much stuff should not be something that you do lightly lightly if if there are so many modifications that to the usual we should all sit here and go oh is this really worth it do i need to be the one doing this this is a conversation we have in the emergency department all the time uh, when it comes to some of these types of high-risk procedures is it really me that needs to be doing this right now or is there a better way can i keep the patient alive can i keep them stable until we can get to somebody who is better equipped to manage this, right? Now, yeah, if the patients, if we are at that crossroads and you've got to do it, then you've got to do it and do it as safely as you can. But if you're not at that place, maybe the decision maker is, 
all right, let's go ahead and call ahead so we can get all the necessary people who can do this in the best possible way because this can go south so fast. One of the uh, conversations I had a couple of years ago, we were developing ECMO alert for us. Yeah. So we, as a program, Eric here, we, we still have the ECMO alert. We haven't done it very often. We do it maybe, honestly, five to ten times a year, maybe as a, as a program. Um, most of them are adults, but it's something that we've all talked about. So one of the triggers was if you intubate an asthmatic, you automatically do ECMO alert. And it, we'll get to ECMO in a second, but it's, it's one of those things like, Hey, if you're even thinking about it, it's something, Hey, what center this, what, where's this patient going? What's definitive? And not that ECMO is the fix all end all be all, but it's a conversation of you can put somebody on ECMO and they're not be intubated. So just keep that in mind. Not again, not done very often, but it can be done. I've had more than a few, um, asthma patients that I have received that are sick enough to require intubation that have ended up on ECMO. Um, and it is in a lot of ways, a game changer. Uh, you're right. ECMO is not, not even close to the top of the list of, you know, medical interventions that I would deem safe. Um, overall, there are just a laundry list of long-term outcomes that can be poor, but at the same time, you know, it, you kept the patient alive maybe their IQ points are a little bit lower. Mm -hmm. uh, maybe they have some issues with cardiovascular disease later in life. Um, but by and large, it is, it is absolutely uh, um, potentially a life-saving thing. And I, I fully agree that any patient that you have had to intubate because they're asthmatic should be on an ECMO watch. When you talk about intubating asthmatics, um, you, you brought it up, Ben, very, very well. Throw the vent management you know kind of out the window. Don't, don't, I won't say it all the way out the window, but it's, it, it, it's a lot different ball game. Um, let's talk a little bit about that. So when y'all initially put these kids on there, know that everything's going to be weird. Normal numbers are not normal numbers. Um, look at your output settings. But for y'all, what are some things you trend or what are some things you really watch out for with these kids to make sure, hey, you're not going down the wrong rabbit hole? I, again, I, I, I haven't really dealt that much with intubated asthma kids because luckily we haven't had to go go to that extreme with them. But, I mean, just, just again, like Dr. Meridia said a second ago, think, think about these numbers. Think about what's taking place inside the body. You've got to be comfortable with accepting higher than comfortable numbers if that makes sense even though you know i have to understand what's going on inside the body i think probably one of the key ones that i would look at is i'd look at my pips for sure but my expiratory would be a big thing my my uh volume because that's going to be a trend that's you said it very well a while ago that's a number one trend number for us on a ventilator status are we are, are we opening up airways? Because now we went from expiring 410 to now we're at 480. Well, yeah, that's that's an indicator there. Now we're opening up some air. We're moving some more air. Or did we go from 410 down to 380? That triggers a scare in my mind. And the drawback to it is, is these patients are probably going to be so sick to the point that I don't want to tell on anybody, but you're fixated on this patient and you're not fixated on that ventilator. So that number is going to creep across that ventilator 
and you're not going to see it. And you're going, why is my patient not getting better? Ding dong, you're making them worse. You know, I don't, I don't mean that in a negative way. But. I do think you have to be careful. Um, a lot of people use gases to drive ventilator changes. I think using, this is not necessarily that patient, you know, expiratory volumes are really helpful in showing you how well you're dealing with the restrictive disease. You know, if, if you set them on a setting and, you know, they're expiring a good volume, maybe you, you know, maybe you're fine. But if you're expiring a really small volume, now we need to start talking about what to do. Like, I would, one of the first things I would do is extend that e-time out, let them have the time that they need to get that air out, and you may see a lot of changes. But if you try to drive with labs like we usually do, you know, you've been given this patient probably hours of albuterol, of beta agonism, you know, you're going to have an acidotic patient, you're going to have a patient who's um, got just significant abnormalities right in the gas, uh, and so... Maybe you're going to let them have a little bit of CO2. Maybe you're not going to be so aggressive yeah. with your speed and <clears throat> ventilation to get that CO2 down. Not going to be focused heavily on trying to get rid of the acidosis because it's not really that much respiratory, especially if they've been on continuous for five hours. You know, so everything does kind of need to change. You need to modify your thought process a little bit. And so this takes no in physiology. This takes no in pharmacology. Um, again, if you have to think of all these different things, yeah. maybe don't do it. Um, but it is extremely different. We, I have seen patients come who have had very negative outcomes because people weren't thoughtful in their vent management. They were making too aggressive moves because of a blood gas. They were not paying attention to things like ID ratios, which are such an important feature of the true status asthmaticus patient. Um, just not giving the patient time. Uh, and so it's, it can get hairy um, pretty fast. You know, I, I definitely, these are times where I um, try to have a lot of trust in my RTs um, who know how to manage ventilators in a broad variety of ways and do it more often than I do. And so I, I will, you know, if one of them is down there and a change needs to be made, we're gonna have a conversation. You know, I'm going to talk about, you know, when was the last time you guys did this? Because I'm going to be honest, it's been a while for me. Um, let's, you know, this is my thought. This is how I would do it. Is this make sense to you? Well, you know, honestly, they do it a whole lot different in the ICU. Well, uh, maybe this is not what I want to do. Maybe let's talk about it. So I definitely ask people. Um, you know, I have no problem, like, calling somebody up on the phone and saying, hey, this is my situation. Um, we're not getting better. What are some of my options? I think another thing, you know, you a lot of people do try to follow ArgeNet and they try to apply it to asthma. You you, you can't do that. <laughs> um, it gets complicated if you've got somebody that if you start looking at gases and they go, hey, my PaO2 is 50. Okay. You got to oxygenation, trumps ventilation every time of the week, but you got to play the ball with it. Um, some of the most complex patients, ventilatory patients I've ever had have been peds asthmatics. They got intubated. And I can think of two of them specifically that were aspiration peds asthmatics. And it was, you're playing the game of oxygenation, ventilation, what you got to do. But watching those IDE ratios, watching your times, 
specifically of making sure, hey, am I giving that patient enough time to get it out? You're going to have permissive hypercapnia. You know you are. That's just that's part of the disease process. But is it too much? Is it too little? It's a game you have to really, to your point, have a conversation, both when if you're a transport team and you're picking them up or you decide to intubate this patient, Either way, when you're doing the handoff of care, when you're talking to whether it's an RT or a CCP, RN, or another physician, or what have you, make sure the vent is one of the biggest parts of that conversation. It's not, yes, patient assessment is important. Yes, pharmacotherapy we've talked about is important. But that vent and what your thought process is of why you did it. I'll never forget one time we were um, went straight to the picky with the patient. I literally took a page of paper and I drew it out. I wrote out, this is what I did, and I talked about it. And it took, you know, usually you do handoff in somewhere between 5 and 15 minutes. This was about 30 to an hour. Um, and it was a conversation of this is what I had and this is what I did, what I did. And it was some weird, you know, from for what it was, it was different settings than everybody was used to, but it worked. It was working for that patient. And, you know, once everybody's going to say, okay, we're going to try this and then the next step. And we talked about, and it was a learning point for me, I learned what the next steps they were going to take were. Um, but, yeah, definitely think about it as a holistic approach to to medicine i think you said it best when you said this is the settings for the patient it's tailored towards the patient it's not a cookbook um recipe that you follow this is you know what the patient wants and you have to look at your ventilator and look at your numbers and your assessment tools to decipher that i think that's i think that's the the key point with ventilating these kids is tailoring it to them and everyone's going to be different. Um, real quick, we've talked about invasive stuff. Briefly talked about ECMO. Um, as far as these ECMO patients, you know, we don't transport ECMO here, but dealing with them upstairs, typically they go on VV ECMO, sometimes VA, but usually it's VV. Um, just give them lungs a break, let them kind of chill out, let everything recruit. They can be on... If a piezoasmatic does progress to intubation, again, for me, ECMO should be in the back of everybody's mind of, hey, this could really happen. Um, and then the other side of that is some patients, they go on ECMO, they're on ECMO for 72 hours, and they come off and they walk out of the hospital. Some of them are on it a lot longer. Yeah. And some of them never I make it out. I think it's a time frame thing there, too. I think how, how soon was the trigger pull? Because you, all, you, you get this concept that ECMO is the last-ditch effort. This is... So, you know, you read some literature, you know, just we, we did the podcast on submersion, you know, and they were in a lot of the literature, a lot of the treatment was geared a lot towards early ECMO on these patients with submersion injuries. So, again, I think pulling the trigger, initiation time, again, last thing, yeah, that's all down the list for us, but on the transport side of it, Luckily, we're taken out of that equation, but we are a component of helping making that decision. Yeah. It's definitely a, it is a bit of a scary decision. We're talking about major, major medical intervention with high risks of morbidity associated with it. Um, but yeah, I mean, sometimes it is the right answer. Um, you know, just because you got just because it's the bottom of the list doesn't mean it should take forever to get to it, right? So, I mean, sometimes we putz around for too long on some of these things and we end up putting ourselves in trouble a lot. I know of one patient that when I was in training, 
um, the person that was caring for them was just really uncomfortable with pulling that trigger. And so that patient kind of spiraled down into the point where instead of an elective, thoughtful, let's take our time and put the patient on ECMO, we crashed that patient on ECMO. They went hard onto VA ECMO in the middle of an arrest um, because we just took too long to make that decision. So just because it's at the end of the process doesn't mean that you have to take forever to do that. Um, Paying attention to some of those things, you know, a, a lot of that medical management can be done much more quickly if it needs to be. Um, it, it's very rare, though, that that decision needs to be made outside of a quaternary or tertiary care center. Um, but it is very important from a like pre-hospital or even inter-hospital setting that that conversation at least should be started Start, early. Yeah. Right. Hey, I'm going to pick up this patient. They're getting intubated now or I'm you know, the way that we're being told is we're going to have to intubate. This person's sick. You know, when we come to the ICU, we just want to go ahead and give you a warning because this patient may end up needing, you know, an ECMO intervention. Because it can take time to blood prime a machine. Uh, it's not something that under best circumstances you want to crash onto. Well, it's, it's, not a, it's not a benign process. you got to pump the machine. you got to have everybody lined yeah. up. You know, you got to have, depending on what center you are, some ER physicians do it, but, you know, depend, again, depending on where you are, but typically a surgical team, make sure you have yeah. everybody set up, good to go. You've got the right ICU staff, yeah. bed, products, toys, everything. There's a lot of gear for that to turn. Yeah. yeah. Way um, better to start that conversation before they ever show up at your institution. Exactly. Well, guys, let's let's break this down real fast. To some some takeaway points for Pete's asthma. Uh, I think the biggest one is be proactive instead of reactive. Um, try and pharmacotherapy best you can. Get all of it without butyrol, mag, terb, epi, whatever it may be. Um, and then, as far as airway management, um, non-invasive before invasive, obviously, and have a real real subtle trigger pull with that. I'm gonna tube it. To yeah. Me. Um, anything else y'all can think of? Make sure we hit. Mm. Cool. Well, guys, remember that everything that does that wheezes is not asthma. Yeah, everything <laughs> wheezes is not <laughs> asthma. It's not always asthma. If it's you don't take anything away from this, if it's not yeah. working, think about it for think a minute. Is this really asthma? All right, well, guys, appreciate you coming on the podcast today. Thank you for your time. Yeah, thank you. Mm. Thank you. Thank you for having.